0: Coming up on the Rip Body Podcast.
1: It is described as like a reverse causation where people who weigh more might be more inclined to switch to diet drinks and therefore that might be one of the reasons why people who weigh more often tend to drink diet drinks rather than they consume diet drinks all their life and that's where they gained weight.
0: Welcome to the show, I'm Andy Morgan and this is the Rip Body Podcast where we discuss how to achieve long-term physique transformation. Today's guest is Ben Carpenter. I've invited him back on the show to answer some reader questions that we didn't get a chance to cover in the previous episode. We cover, don't people just need more willpower? Can fruit make you gain weight due to the sugar content? Why is it so hard to maintain weight loss over the long term? And what can we do about it? How can you remove the fear of lifting for older clients? Is there any research on the long-term impact of artificial sweeteners? Is it possible to effectively bulk while intermittent fasting? We also cover why Ben doesn't go super hard on any specific diet ideology and what Ben is planning now that his book has been released. I hope you enjoyed this Q&A conversation with Ben Carpenter. Ben, thank you for uh, joining us for this uh, Q&A section. Fuck, that was shit.
1: (laughs) You should definitely start with that. Just start with that. I
0: am. There we go. That is the start of it. Um, We're going to do some Q&As because we didn't get a chance to do them last time. I do appreciate your time. Let's start off. So
1: don't people just need more willpower? Um, no, that is not how I would describe it. So to answer this question effectively, I think we have to use one uniform goal. Someone wants to diet. They want to lose body fat. And it is often touted that people who struggle to lose body fat lack willpower. They're inherently lazy. But that is a massive oversimplification of... Psychology and biology. So, for example, I have always been an active person. When I was a kid, I grew up in a super rural village. I there were no restaurants, there were no clubs, there were no takeaways. There was nothing. There was one small shop. So, I didn't have a takeaway until I was in my twenties. I shit you not. I didn't takeaway.
0: You didn't, as in, like you ordered food to take out, right, and have at home.
1: Yeah. No no takeaway no takeaway deliveries until I was in my twenties. Um mm. or very sporadically if I was somewhere else. So my habits when I was a child were very kind of ingrained in me. When I became a teenager, I was still playing sports because I have been playing sports since I was like 5 years old. So for me maintaining an active lifestyle is very very easy. Maintaining certain dietary habits very very easy. Now, is it fair to say that anyone who doesn't have my body fat percentage has less willpower than me. I think that would be silly because as an example, let's say I have a client who's struggling to lose body fat. This particular hypothetical client um, runs a multi-million dollar business. They started it from scratch on their own. Are we going to tell the person that gets up at 4am every morning, 5am every morning, and works until 8, 9 p.m. at night, that they lack willpower. Because that's not a lazy person. They've achieved more in their business life than I ever have. We can look at them and say, oh, they're struggling to go to the gym, they lack willpower. But they don't. Like People view willpower almost as this universal description. But it's almost like willpower related to the gym. It's willpower related to habits. And you're looking at people who have willpower for their favorite hobby someone who loves weight training it doesn't take a lot of willpower for them to go to the gym because they love going to the gym they enjoy it whereas someone who hates going to the gym it takes more kind of cognitive effort for them to go fucking hell i need to drag myself there even though i hate it now the other thing is biologically there are reasons that things will be harder for one person than another so for example if two people wanted to increase their bench press, you know as well as I do that there are so called hyper responders when it comes to training. Some people gain strength really, really quickly. That's seen in research studies, the same weight training interventions. Some people get better results, some people get worse results. So, that person who gets worse results would have to work harder and change what they're doing compared to the person who gets results more effortlessly. Now, It doesn't necessarily mean that willpower is never involved it's just looking at someone's results and saying they didn't get results therefore they lack willpower is in my opinion a massive gross misunderstanding of what willpower even is and biologically there are reasons that people will find it harder than others whether it's building muscle getting stronger losing fat some people have much higher appetite levels than others So for them, losing fat is going to be harder than someone whose appetite is relatively low. And as an example of this, this is a true example. A friend of mine has probably the most robotic appetite I have ever come across. Mm -hmm. He said to me, I started dieting. He got into ridiculous shape, ridiculous shape. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is more muscular than me. He is stronger than me now. And he's been training for a fraction of the time. And when it came to dieting, he said, oh, for breakfast, all eat is like, he has something like four hard boiled eggs and a box of raisins. And I was like, well, that's it. A box and I was of like, firstly, I don't, hope you don't mind me saying this, but I was like, that sounds like a really shit breakfast. Like it's so bland and it's so small. And he doesn't, he doesn't get hungry and the same people do. He never craves ultra processed foods. He doesn't crave sweet foods. He's not fighting temptation. Whereas If you gave that breakfast to most of your clients, most of them would be like, I'm so fucking hungry by lunchtime or my gym performance went to shit. And this guy seems to cope well on it. Mm. seems to cope fine. And I have never given him that. But the point is, the way his appetite regulates, when he diets, he can do things with his diet that most people cannot adhere to. He is the type of guy that 190 pounds if you gave him a 1200 calorie per day diet he would stick with it and he would stick with it weirdly effortlessly and i'm not saying he should do that but the point is some people have certain appetite regulation mechanisms whether it's hormonal differences um, someone who has high testosterone levels might gain muscle quicker someone who has um, different appetite measurements will feel hungrier faster than other people. So implying that it's equally as easy for everyone to get lean or build muscle is, I think it's ridiculous. I'm surprised that so many personal trainers see anyone struggling and immediately say, you just need to try harder. Because even if someone is lacking willpower, when has telling them they're lacking willpower ever been the magic solution? If someone struggles to go to the gym, you can't say, try harder. And then they're like, oh, thanks. That was all I needed. The point is you have to work out why they're struggling and then give them a solution. And as one example of this, one of the greatest weight loss success diets for long-term dietary interventions, most dietary interventions, as you know, are a few weeks or a few months long. It's very rare to study people for several years because it's expensive, it's difficult, participants don't stay with the program. One of the studies that has a better long-term success rate, one of the things they did was problem-solving. People who struggle to lose body fat or maintain the body fat they lost, they would identify the reason that they were struggling and then try and come up with a solution. So -hmm. for example, if someone said they're not feeling motivated to train, why are they not motivated? Do they want to train with a friend? Do they need to train with a personal trainer? Are they struggling to get to the gym for a reason? Can they train at home if they're struggling to get to the gym? Can they afford the gym? Is that the problem? But the point is, they work out why someone is struggling and then they try and solve that. And they had a problem-solving toolbox. Now, imagine 100 people came to you and said, oh yeah, we're struggling for whatever reason. That is the type of thing that you would do as a coach. You wouldn't say try harder and leave it at that. It's useless advice. So no, I think telling everyone they need more willpower is uh, gross oversimplification. I think it's probably more harmful than helpful. It's patronizing. And whether someone thinks it's true or not, I don't think it's actually helpful to just shout that louder and expect it to change anyone's mind.
0: I think that's a great answer.
1: Okay,
0: are you aware of a guy called David Goggins? Yes.
1: What do you think of him?
0: I don't. I I know you don't really like doing answering such questions.
1: I don't. Um, I don't don't actually follow him. Okay. Yeah. So, what I I would say, I know, hmm. I know some people respond to certain motivational styles. Yeah. And I'm never. It's not about denying that. It's just acknowledging. Firstly, it's it's objectively accurate to say there are reasons some people will find it harder than others. No Mm. one should be arguing with that. Whether someone thinks that a certain communication style will help them get from A to B is almost like a separate subtopic. And I am not ever, I don't ever debate that some people like the work harder, you lazy slob type psychology. Mm. What I'm saying is when people make videos on social media saying that, they have to realize that there is going to be at least a subset of people that say that's not fucking useful. Mm. And that is all I'm saying is if you actually want to help people and you want to help as many people as possible, telling everyone on the planet that they're lazy by posting a video with no extra explanation is the equivalent of you saying to all of your clients, if you're not getting results, you need to work harder. What you would actually do is say, why are you struggling? What can we fix?
0: Yeah. I I like your answer very much. Um, Just for context, uh, David Goggins—he used to be a um, U.S. Navy SEAL, um, and then he was a Navy SEAL instructor. And he's—I think he held the chin-up world record at one point. Um, He's an ultra Ironman triathlete, and I'm not trying to. My point in bringing him up is that I am not trying to accuse him of being someone who says or suggests that, yeah, it is just a problem of willpower. um, But he is, I think he does a service to certain people who need to wake up and get shouted at um, every day that, look, come on, you got this, you can do it. You know, as you imagine, if you've got someone beasting you when you're going through your 12, your, your hell week, um, and you're going through that, those eight weeks of Navy SEAL training, he he does that for people and some people will respond to it. There's another guy I found recently who he literally just makes 15 second clips saying, go to the gym, just go to the gym. And that's his entire thing and has like a quarter of a million followers. And some people are going to find that helpful and then some are just not at all. And yeah.
1: um, I, think, I think psychology is complicated. Some people mm. respond well to some things and some people don't. And there are some people that if they came for a gym session with me and I shouted at them, they would work harder. Mm. And there are some people that if they came to a gym session with me and I shouted at them, they would think, I'm not going back to that guy. And yep. when it comes to reasons people are struggling, they're – that can always be a multifaceted topic and i think shouting at people more and louder possibly helps a subset of people and there are many other different subsets of people who say that was not the thing i needed that was useless
0: all right thanks for that question we'll move on um Can fruit make you gain weight due to the sugar content? These are all reader questions, by the way. So can fruit uh, make you gain weight due to the sugar content?
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. A tricky one, right? It's not not necessarily tricky as much as how much detail do I put into this. I'll try and answer it concisely rather than waffling. Right. So, yes – Anything with calorie content in theory could make you gain weight. Um, Sugar in itself is demonized a lot, but sugar is, firstly, there are different sugars in different foods. And simplifying foods down to their sugar content can sometimes be a bit misleading because people view sugar as bad. But is an apple equally as bad as a jelly bean, for example? So let's say if you told half of your clients to eat more fruit and you told half of your clients to eat more jelly beans, the people who started eating more fruit would gain less weight. And the reason for that is not because apples are less fattening necessarily, although there's a a facet to that. It's that when people make dietary changes, they don't change in isolation. And when you tell people to eat more fruit that tends to displace other foods. There is a certain degree of what's called dietary compensation. And when people eat more fruits, they displace foods out. And therefore in research trials, observational research trials, which means you look at dietary trends over many years of lots of people, people who eat more fruit don't tend to weigh more. If anything, they weigh the same or they weigh slightly less in short-term research trials where they actually tell people to eat a certain amount of fruit or a certain amount of a fruit product trial they tend to suggest that fruit is better for appetite regulation than a comparative sugar so hence apples being less fattening than jelly beans because if you add jelly beans onto people's diets they're more likely to increase their overall calorie intake without displacing something else so technically yes fruit could make people gain weight because of the sugar. But eating lots and lots and lots and lots of fruit without reducing the amount of foods you eat elsewhere is much harder than it is for other more processed forms of sugar. Which is why people like myself would say demonizing sugar is a bit silly because sugar is in a very diverse range of foods. Some are more micronutrient-rich, some are more micronutrient-sparse. And fruit is a perfect example to why. Did that answer? answer.
0: Yeah, great answer. I believe that did. Why is it so hard to maintain weight loss over the long term? And what can we do about it?
1: Great question. And we could do a whole podcast on this one question and still Mm. not really... Um, do the topic justice so just for context because a lot of people don't realize how difficult maintaining long-term weight loss is if you look at weight loss trials that follow up with people several years later typically almost every dietary trial shows a degree of weight regain so if someone loses x number of pounds over the 12-week diet if you follow up with them two years later some of that will have been regained. And that is almost inevitable, seen across almost every single weight loss study that has a follow up. Now, part of the issue is you can't study people for several years. You can't take 500 people and follow them for five years to see if they're all adhering to the diet. So, in some studies, what they will do is put people on the diet and then call them a few years later or speak to them a few years later and do the follow-up and it's almost like a cold call how much do you weigh what's going on let's take your stats and that's kind of the equivalent of um, giving someone personal training for 12 weeks and then calling them five years later and saying are you bench pressing more than when we were training and if not is that indicative of your training style not being useful you would argue not because they stopped training with you so you can't um kind of take your results and extrapolate them over the course of several years so the question is why is that difficult why do so many people regain weight and there are probably um, more factors to this than anyone actually knows for sure number one if you do a dietary trial and you say group a go on a low carb diet group b go on a low fat diet who loses the most weight after six months you have a result and then after five years, if you follow up, if people regained weight, is part of that because they were put on a low-carb diet? Do they even want to be on a low-carb diet, or were they assigned a low-carb diet as per being a study participant? So one factor is almost definitely people just follow diets that they don't actually want to stick with. How many people start a diet in January knowing full well that they cannot keep that diet going until december it's uh kind of like jumping on a bandwagon and it's a bandwagon they can't stay on forever so at some point they have to jump off that's kind of inevitable there are other biological reasons for it so losing weight can increase appetite which can make diets harder to stick to calorie control diets harder to stick to there can be psychological reasons for it so when you go on a dietary phase you see the number on the scale going down. You have the external reward of seeing the number on the scale going down. And that can be motivating to people. But you can't lose weight forever. And what do you do when the number on the scale stops going down? Do you have the same motivation to keep your habits going without having the external reward of watching the number change? And psychologically, there is a certain shift from losing weight to maintaining weight. Because you are hoping that people are going to keep their habits going forever, despite the fact that their weight is relatively static. Um, so yes, there are millions of reasons for it. Well, not millions. That's obviously an exaggeration. There can be downregulation of energy expenditure, resting energy expenditure decreases. People consume less food, so the amounts of calories they burn from the thermic effect of food decreases. People can become energy-preserving So they move around less. They might feel themselves getting physically more sedentary. People tend to sometimes get a bit tired when they keep dieting and dieting and dieting and dieting, and their body will go into almost like a preservation mode. Um, When they weigh less, they will also burn fewer calories via movement. So when someone starts and they start losing weight on 2,500 calories per day, at some point their energy deficit won't be a deficit anymore and they will stop losing weight and they will reduce their calorie intake and keep doing that and at some point it might feel like their body is fighting back they need to consume fewer calories that's just the the unavoidable truth of thermodynamics if someone weighs less than they did to begin with they don't need as many calories and and as much energy as they used to but eating less food forever also isn't an exciting proposition. So people will almost get to a certain point where the results they're getting from the habits they can invest, to me, is almost like they reach a crossover point. Going beyond this would be too fucking difficult. It mm. would make me feel shit. This is where I feel good.
0: Yep. Okay. So then, very importantly, choosing a diet, or choosing dietary habits that can be sustained from the outset. Um, Perhaps I'd add in there that although you will need to reduce calories over time to continue to lose weight, you will be able to add back your calorie deficit at some point and therefore eat more, but know that that's going to come with a slight weight bump from an increase in gut content water glycogen, and don't let that screw with you. It's it's not fat. Um, And... yeah yeah, I, I think having that end goal in in mind, right? Um, those are perhaps the two the two big ones uh, for that. Oh, and um, perhaps having a uh, daily tracking their daily steps so that if they do find that they tend to move around less as they're dieting, that can alert them to that. And then perhaps they could go for a short walk or two to make sure that their um, activity levels are staying roughly the same. Um, You mentioned that one in your book. Um,
1: Well, yeah, 100%. So um, at an extreme end of the spectrum, if someone has ever done bodybuilding and they've stood on stage, they will probably know that they feel more tired and they will probably realize that their energy levels have decreased to the point that they move around less. And I noticed this at my leanest. Even when I was with clients, I noticed that instead of standing, I used to find excuses to sit. (laughs) I would Mm -hmm. sit on a stability ball while I was coaching them if they were doing floor exercises, whereas normally I would crouch down. And I noticed that as I was getting more tired, I would start leaning against things in the gym. And then when I was at home, I would sit down more and I would lie down more because my energy level decreased. Now, these are all kind of energy preserving mechanisms to reduce the amount of energy you burn via movement so if you do that and someone is tracking their steps it is quite possible that they will notice that their step count slowly trends down over time if they lose a significant amount of weight not everyone will notice it obviously but it can be a good behavioral step and some research studies um there was one that looked at people who have maintained a lot of weight loss for a long period of time Um, and they tended to be more active and it wasn't necessarily just gym training. It was just walking more and they can't ever prove that that was the reason in isolation why they maintained weight loss, but it was thought that might be a good behavioral step to maintain weight loss.
0: Mm. Next one. How can you remove the fear of lifting for older clients or people?
1: I I think psychology is a complicated topic and I don't think there is a, an easy answer for this because I, I can't give a piece of advice and suddenly everyone who wants to start lifting will lift, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I have worked with elderly clients and sometimes they have the psychological desire to offset aging and especially if they feel the improvements of the exercise um, regime, it can be positive reinforcement and they keep it going. But the hard thing is getting people in the gym in the first place. Uh, If someone has never been in the gym, I think the likelihood that they are 60 years old and all of a sudden are desperate to go and lift some weights is probably unlikely. Mm. So... The important question is how can you take that first step with people? And from working with people in the past, I think it's as a caveat, it's probably important to point out that personal trainers, people often hire them. They go out of their way to hire them. So if someone over the age of 60 years old or even 70 years old, some of my clients came to me because they wanted to hire me, I don't have to convince them to get in the gym. It doesn't mean that what works for them means that I can go up, I could persuade people who have no inclination to go to the gym and suddenly make them really want to. Um, I don't think there is an easy solution for persuading anyone to go to the gym unless they want to on their own. Mm -hmm. And if there is a solution, whoever comes up with it will become a very wealthy person. Mm -hmm. Um, When I have worked with clients in that age bracket the thing that has always been a a positive um undertone of our relationship is them improving their quality of life so i had a client in their 70s that for the first time i trained them for a couple of years and for the first time i had ever seen them they walked up the stairs without using their cane they used to walk upstairs, you know, one step at a time where you do one foot up and then you join it, one foot up and then you join it, one foot up yeah. and then you join it. They were so weak, they used to do that and hold on to the rail with one hand and have their cane in their other hand and still walk like that. And then one day when they left the gym, he put his, he's like 76, I think, 77. Mm-hmm. He put his walking sticks because he had one in on each side into one hand and just walked up the stairs like that. And I remember standing there being like, but the thing that helped him come back is the fact that his quality of life was improving it's not a lot of younger people are like am i losing weight am i changing the way i look and they have a certain way of measuring that what they're doing is working and for people of an older age bracket their priorities are often quite different and you need to give them a reason to want to keep coming back And if they feel themselves getting stronger, if they have less pain, if they function better in day-to-day life, whatever, find out what they desire and try and tick that box.
0: Boom. Great answer. Is there any research on the long-term impact of artificial sweeteners, preservatives, and alike?
1: Okay. So I think... This is a, it's a very difficult topic to answer and I am going to answer it in a way that I hope is more educational, even though I have dodged the question. So firstly, when someone says, is there research on artificial sweeteners? Keep in mind that artificial sweeteners are a group of substances. It is not as straightforward as saying, is there any research on sucralose? people are asking for research on a whole group of compounds. And sometimes there are research studies on one sweetener in particular. So for example, you get people to drink um, sucralose sweetened drinks. And over the course of 10 weeks, you measure whatever blood marker that you want to measure or gut Mm -hmm. gut microbiome marker you want to measure, whatever. So, When you look at long-term effects, long-term effects of health are very difficult to measure because let's say you see a gut microbiome change over the course of a 10-week trial with sucralose. What does that actually mean for someone's health? We don't really know. No one really knows. It's just an observed effect. But you can't take a group of people and say, drink three sucralose sweetened drinks for the next 10 years, and then we're going to do a full health panel and see what's happened because you are not controlling the rest of their diet. It is a follow up period of time that is too long. No researcher is going to want to do that. So, what you do is you cross reference different types of studies. So, this 10 week trial showed a change in gut microbiome with this specific um, sweetener or preservative, or whatever. How does that actually affect someone's health in the long run? We're not really sure. When we look at different types of research papers, over the course of several years, people who tend to consume more artificial sweetened beverages might have worse health outcomes, like, say, cardiovascular disease. Um, They can't, with that type of research, they can't pinpoint... The cause. So, if some, if a group of people have an increased incidence of a type of cardiovascular disease when they have been consuming more um artificial sweetened products, is it the artificial sweetened products that actually caused that? You don't know. That type of research. You can look at trends and you can look at associations. You can't say that caused that. Correlation and is not causation.
0: You mentioned this that is, in. You mentioned sorry. You mentioned this in your book. Uh, Title plug, everything fat loss, um, get on the email list, uh, bdc, bdc, um, (laughs) bdccarpenter.com to get notified or search for it in Amazon. Um, You mentioned how it could be that the high diet drink consuming group are just people who are struggling with their weight, hence they're consuming the diet drinks.
1: Right. And so that so, kind of
0: comes back to this important correlation doesn't necessarily equal causation.
1: That's, I think diet drinks are a good example because there is a divergence of outcomes depending on what type of research you look at. So there are numerous research papers that say people who consume more diet drinks tend to weigh more. And we did a follow-up over X number of years, they tend to weigh more, that type of observational research. However, In short term controlled trials, where they give one group of people diet drinks and the other group of people sugar sweetened beverages, diet drinks tend to perform better. Not always, but they tend to. And that depends on partly how the research trial is conducted. So if you get people to add sugar sweetened beverages on top of their existing diet, chances are that's going to come with an increased calorie intake. Whereas when you do that with sugars, uh, sweetened artificial sweetened beverages, that doesn't tend to change calorie intake, but it doesn't mean that there it's significantly better for weight loss because if someone only adds one diet drink per day, that's not a huge shift in calorie intake in either direction. So sometimes trials suggest that there's no significant difference, but there tends to be neutral or small benefit from having from a body weight perspective, from drinking artificially sweetened drinks versus sugar sweetened drinks. Um, when you compare artificially sweetened drinks to water, things get even more complicated because of course you then don't have the calorie displacement of comparing it to the sugar sweetened drink. So you you kind of have to draw conclusions based on different lines of research. And generally speaking, trying to identify long-term health effects of anything, is difficult because you're. Let's say, for example, I said to you, um, people who eat more carrots over the course of decades will develop X condition. How do you study that to prove it? You don't really. It's not well,
0: a. Th- there's only one method I can think of, and that's to give them a slice of carrot cake a day. Um, with their dinner, right? Which is the only dietary intervention with carrots that I yeah. think people can be guaranteed to stick to every day for yeah. thirty years. Otherwise, you screwed. And and, and, what, and of
1: course, what, what, what would happen is some people would die before the study finished. <laughs> some data would get lost. Yeah. Uh, health outcomes would be measured. There might be a statistical significant difference. Statistically significant difference, and people will say, "But we can't prove that it was the carrots. Was it the rest of the cake that they were eating, or was it other lifestyle factors?" So the point is, long-term research is really difficult. You can look at short-term research, you can look at animal research when it comes to preservatives, sweeteners, etc., and you can look at observational research that shows associations. But saying for one hundred percent sure this causes this or this is more likely to cause this is really difficult. And that's why sweeteners are a hotly disputed topic because I could show you a research paper saying people who consume more sweeteners are more likely to have adverse cardiovascular risk. And then someone else can share a research paper that says, but this group of people drank X number of sodas per day and there was no significant health difference at the end of the trial. What do you believe? Mm. both of them can be true even though they sound like they're conflicting
0: just to clarify the one that um uh, suggested that those who consume more um, artificial sweetening beverage diet cokes diet sodas um they have more um what heart disease risk was it
1: uh yeah there was a recent paper 2022 published that got a lot Mm. of mainstream attention and it was an observational trial where right. people who consumed more, it was associated with, yeah, increased incidence.
0: And that comes down to what we were saying about how that observation, it could be that they were consuming more artificial artificially sweetened beverages because they were painfully aware, keenly aware that they needed to diet to – um improve their weight and therefore reduce their risk of um, cardiovascular slash heart disease. Um, And they know or they have this idea that artificial sweeteners rather than um, sugary drinks are going to be better for them. And that's why they were consuming them in the first place, right?
1: Yeah. And like as as an easy example of this, if this sounds too long and confusing for people, Mm, mm. let's say person X has been struggling with their weight and they have been gaining weight for years. So they decide, amongst other things, to switch to diet soda instead of regular soda. A year later, if they fill out a survey and they say, I drink two diet sodas per day, you can say, well, they consume more diet soda and they have a higher body weight. There is an association there. But you don't necessarily know that their current diet is reflective of how they have eaten for their entire life. It's a snapshot. It can be just a snapshot in time. And that particular thing isn't necessarily the only thing that might be different about their diet. So with artificial sweeteners specifically, it is described as like a reverse causation where people who weigh more might be more inclined to switch to diet drinks. And therefore, that might be one of the reasons why people who weigh more often tend to drink diet drinks rather than... They consumed diet drinks all their life and that's where they gained weight.
0: So if, if you can allow me to simplify this question or yeah. actually, frankly, just change the question completely, um, should this person be fearful of having some artificially sweetened beverages?
1: Um, generally speaking, no. Um, there are some medical conditions where certain sweeteners might not be a good idea. Um saying to people like yes or no is difficult. Kind of like in the same way some people have a peanut allergy and they will Mm -hmm. die. It doesn't mean no one can consume peanuts. Some people might say, hey, I got a got a headache when I consumed aspartame. Was it the aspartame? Was it the placebo effect or nocebo effect of knowing that they were consuming aspartame? um, You know, things get complicated. Generally speaking, um, I would say people don't need to worry unless they're consuming larger quantities. And that is the same with most foods. Everything has a certain dose response curve. Too little exercise is not healthy. Too much exercise can also be unhealthy. Too much of anything can be a bad idea. And it's not necessarily like you have to avoid it or drink as much as you want.
0: Is it possible to bulk effectively while intermittent fasting?
1: Uh, I think yes. I don't necessarily think it is um, optimal, whatever optimal means. Um, As an example of this, I'll use one specific trial. So one of the early research papers um, published by Grant Tinsley and others showed that time-restricted feedings to so like 16-8 type dieting um, had worse lean body mass increases than your normal diet. However, when you tell people that they're only allowed to consume in a four, six, eight-hour window, they tend to eat less food. And when people tend to eat less food, they also tend to consume less protein. So if someone gets worse results on in- intermittent fasting for muscle growth um, and strength is it the intermittent fasting that's the problem or is it the fact they were just eating less food is it the fact they were eating less protein so there are several trials where if you match calories between conditions they tend to get similar results and that can include muscle growth um, so if the listener listening to this keeps their protein exactly the same, keeps their calorie intake exactly the same and shifts their food so they're eating into a smaller window, they might not notice anything significant from a body composition change standpoint. But on average, if you tell a big group of people to do intermittent fasting, their natural dietary changes to eat less food probably isn't going to be conducive to gaining more weight. That is part of the reason why intermittent fasting is a very simple recommendation from a weight loss standpoint is because when you tell people to eat in a small window, they reduce the number of calories they consume. So they naturally gravitate towards eating less. And from a muscle gain perspective, that could obviously be counterproductive.
0: Right. So this is one actually, it's a question of mine. Um, so as I read your book, it became Clear very early on that this wasn't going to be a book that went and gave the smackdown to a lot of different diet ideologies. Yeah, which would have been fun.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
0: um, but I sensed that it was a, this was a very purposeful stylistic choice when yeah. you decided to create the book that is absolutely consistent with your personality. Um, yeah. Can you just say why you decided to go that route?
1: Yeah. Um, pick any controversial topic you want when it comes to diet approaches. What do you think? Name a diet approach that you think is overrated. Pick one, doesn't matter.
0: Oh, carnival. Carnival. Okay.
1: So carnival. Seems to be getting way example. too much
0: attention recently. Uh, I think, for-
1: Yeah. I think most, reward. People, most <laughs> people would agree that the carnivore diet is not one that should be encouraged to a wide population um whether people get results on it or not is a slightly different topic but generally speaking you would never say to a whole country everyone should go carnivore so if i say in the book carnivore diet is fucking stupid it ignores fiber which generally speaking, is associated with a whole array of improved health outcomes. I know carnivore people will argue about that, but let's put that to the side. If I say the carnivore diet is fucking bullshit, you should never do that. It's a waste of time. It's overhyped. Stop it. Some people reading my book will be following a carnivore diet, and I have not actually made a good case for why they should change the way they're eating or not. All I have done is insulted them. And my personal uh, gut instinct is that when you insult someone's ideology, which diets often are, they tend to be a bit cultish. They dig their heels in the sand and often aren't as open to changing their mind. So as an example, if I looked at your training program right now and said, fucking hell, this is bullshit. There's there's no way that this is optimal. Like, what are you even fucking doing? Do you go, oh, I'm going to keep listening to this guy? Or do you get a bit defensive because I've gone in so hard on something that you feel personally attached to? And m- my personal view is I I will call people out online for misinformation because it's pretty – it's it's less up for debate if I say the thing that you're saying right there isn't – scientifically accurate based on the data we have now what i'm far less inclined to do is say the thing that you believe in is shit don't do it because i just i don't think it's actually helpful so i think the carnivore diet is hugely overrated and could cause severe health problems some people love it but generally speaking i wouldn't prescribe it to people but If I say it's a fucking waste of time, don't do it. I don't think I convince any carnivore dieters that I know anything about the carnivore diet. All I have done is piss them off.
0: Yep, makes total sense. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to. So, I ran into this issue recently, very recently, where so attacking someone's view when they're already held in kind of an entrenched position. Or when they've already kind of been grasped by a certain echo chamber, never goes well. Right? Yeah. Never. And there was a, a friend of mine who had been sending me, is it Andrew Tate? Is that his name? Yeah. He heard of this guy? He'd been sending me Andrew Tate memes recently. And he said, oh, I was, I was like, don't send me this guy's stuff. I'm not interested. I'm not going to watch. And he's like, you should. And he sent me a few more. And I was like, actually, after I said that, he didn't send me any more in fairness. Yeah. But I, I, I kind of confronted him uh, recently about it and um, didn't think i could have done a better job i i I was i i I tried to be very very um calm and nice i tried to be the what would uh what would ben carpenter do approach but it um it, it i think i could have done just a better job job of it and i could have tried to understand okay where where's the frustrations here what's he getting at what is actually trying to be said and it got a little bit personal and um that just wasn't the the intention but
1: i i've got like a certain reflective question that i ask myself and mm -hmm. this is not me ever saying that someone else is never to blame but if I can't convince someone of something. My natural reaction is, did I communicate that poorly versus they're dumb? Because I think a lot of people like say, whether it's a dietary approach or a certain person they like in celebrity fandom world, if you're like, this guy is terrible, you shouldn't listen to him. If they ignore you, is that reflective of them being stubborn or is it reflective of you not doing a very good job of persuading them it's like it's kind of like a sales a sales reflection and generally speaking i know i make videos where i swear at people and i will say certain things that are scathing about certain diets but i actually try not to make it all encompassing mm-hmm. every time i say this person in this particular keto video is lying what they are saying is factually not supported by evidence there will be keto people who get really angry at me even though i never insulted keto on that video itself and the point is people get challenged and they dig their heels into the sand and they don't want to be moved and when they do that i don't think "Oh, those people are so stupid i think what could i have done better to get my point across And I think a lot of the time, one of the things that I have concluded is that you don't convince someone by telling them how wrong they are. I think you convince them by making a better case for something else. So with keto, I won't say keto is bullshit. That doesn't teach any keto fans why I believe that. If I say, here are the reasons that A lot of people like keto, and they're like, Yeah, that is exactly why I like keto. And I'm like, Here are the things you should be cautious of. Those people feel like I already understand the reasons they do keto in the first place. And then hopefully they're more receptive to thinking, Yeah, actually, he made some good points. So if I said, Look, some people like keto because it helps regulate their appetite, true. It causes a lot of people to lose body fat and gain muscle tissue without counting calories also true however there are risks of xy and z mm. um some people will notice say bad breath or body odor or worse performance in the gym or whatever if i present both sides i hope that more keto people will go yeah he made a good case actually that's it
0: yeah you make a good point there uh, i think taking it on the chin as uh, accepting responsibility um that you've done a poor job, which I have to in this case. Cause I did just say the guy's an idiot. What are you what are you doing? And I wasn't I said a bit more than that. Um but
1: some people yeah. listening to this podcast, if they really like that person, mm. okay. already they dislike you for pointing that out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just how I think that's how people get personally attached to things like you like me. And if someone said Ben Carpenter's a real dickhead, you might be like, oh, hang on, because it challenges you. But if they say, look, I agree with these things he said, but this thing he said, I don't agree with, you're more likely to go, yeah, fair point. Mm. And that's just kind of how I tend to view it. Now, some people you might just think are dickheads, and that's fine. I'm just saying that I'm not sure that ever changes someone's mind. Right. If you say, you know, that hero that you worship, dickhead, don't like him. Yeah. <laughs>
0: it's a purposeful stylistic choice and i think it's uh the book is is way better for it thank you last question then what's the future for you you can't sell this one book and live off it forever and i know that you're not going to start just shilling um diet pills and um fit teas Uh, what what's is what's the future
1: i don't know yet uh This has been all encompassing in my brain for a while. Mm. What I do know is whatever I do next will probably be of a similar ilk where I create a product and then sell that product. And I personally gravitate more I gravitate more towards that because that's what I'm already doing. Social media for me is creating content and letting people consume that content. And it's easier for me to say, hey, if you want to buy this book off me or this product off me, I can just keep making content, which is what my brain naturally gravitates towards. If I switched to something like uh, online coaching, for example, there's a different shift where I'm giving people units of my time. And I think the way my brain works, it would be better for me to say, here's content that I've made. If you want to buy it, you can buy it. I don't know what that looks like yet. But when I think, once I launch the book and wait some time for all my tears to dry up, I will say, what is the thing that I think people need? Can I solve that problem? And that will probably be whatever's next.
0: One thing that popped into my head as you were saying that was potentially selling either individually or as a collection um, little video lectures, lectures yeah. sounds boring, um, or seminars. And you're very good at communicating certain topics. You, you're very good at communicating fitness topics to people in an empathetic, uh, uh, non-douchey, non-judgmental way. And perhaps little videos of how to have a conversation with a client or a loved one about a certain topic they might go down they might
1: go down what, well. a good a good friend of mine said mm. you should do video series because you're so used to talking on video already mm. why don't you make uh like a video lecture series or something where you're doing video format rather than book format and i'm not against that i'm just less familiar with what i would put on that and also one of the things which i know a lot of business people will judge me for is when i thought about that my immediate inclination was i don't want it to encroach on the free stuff i give away anyway i don't want to suddenly make people feel like if they want to keep accessing information from me it's behind a paywall i would prefer to keep making content the way i make content and then offer something above and beyond that people can sign up for rather than saying if you like these videos you can pay for similar videos Yeah, it would need to be differentiated enough. And I, I haven't yet come to terms with whether that's something I could want, could do or want to do. But I, that's the type of thing that I would consider.
0: Yeah, that's why I was thinking like you make it as a circling around conversations with people, whether they be loved ones, or your clients, going for the personal trainers, perhaps, or people who are really into fitness, but they've got other loved ones in their life that they want to help out. And how do you have empathetic, uh, conversations with them um that's something that's completely separate and that's something that i think you could you could make and, and sell and that people would buy and you could or you could do the uh the sam harris approach of um hey look if you really want this and you can't afford it send us an email and you don't have to explain yourself it's just yours you could always yeah. do that i've done that with um when march or april uh 2020 rolled around i did that with my my books yeah. um i did it with my book and then i did it with um the muscle and strength pyramid books so i i discussed that with eric and andrew and we all agreed it was a good thing to do and i got funnily enough i got more emails of the ilk of wow i knew you were a good one but this just confirmed everything I thought about you when I sent that's that cute. email more than people saying, Hey, could, could I have, may I have a free book? I think maybe yeah. i got 20 people say that, but I probably got 40 emails just saying, wow, that was super nice of you kind of thing. Yeah. That's cute. Yeah, maybe something you could do that just stays true to values. Anyway, I I, look forward was, to,
1: mm, I was just going to yeah. say when you said, uh, you could make some video topics you could do these and then charge my very first thing and this is how my brain works is Mm. i've got some great those that could give me some great ideas for videos i can put on social media Mm -hmm. i'm Mm -hmm. so i'm so used to being like what can i give people for free that it's almost hard for me to go how would i monetize this where's Mm. the the kind of marketing angle where's the the business plan I just go is this something I can help people with great make a video post it for free and already when you said like oh you could talk about how to be empathetic I was like oh that gives me a good video idea and I was like this is exactly why my brain struggles this is why I'm driving a cheap convertible and not a Ferrari like other influencers
0: I I think if you can um get over yourself then that would be of, of benefit to your banking. No, I'm just kidding. If you can um, position it in your mind as you're doing a service here, mainly for personal trainers who are benefiting yeah. and then profiting off of that or yeah. helping... Yeah, There's nothing dirty about the word profit. They're, they're benefiting yeah. and profiting off of that for their business, then you can perhaps justify that in your head better. Um, whatever you need to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway... Appreciate your time, Ben. Um, Pleasure.
1: Where do people go to buy your book? Uh, Amazon. Amazon is the answer to everything.
0: To everything, everything... Fat loss. Everything fat loss. There we go. This has been fun. Thanks, man. I wish you all the best. I wish you all the best. All right, that wraps up today's episode. Thank you for listening. You can find Ben's book, Everything Fat Loss, on Amazon. And if you want even more Ben in your life, which I highly recommend, search for Ben Carpenter on Instagram or TikTok or YouTube. And if you aren't on our email list yet, go to RIPBODY.com, drop your email address in the box, and you'll get our free nutrition setup guide along with a seven-day email course guiding you through the most common mistakes that I see people make with their nutrition. And if you're interested in coaching, go to RIPBODY.com, click the coaching button in the menu, and I'd love to see how
1: we can help. All right, until next time then. Peace.